Hi, I'm Malcolm Duncan. Thanks for joining me for the podcast series Risk Takers, The Life God Intends for You, based on a book by the same name that I wrote in 2013. My prayer is that God will use this podcast series to encourage you, to inspire you, to challenge you, to stretch you, but most of all, to lead you into the life that he has for you. For more information on Risk Takers or other resources, please take a look at my website, malcolmduncan.co.uk, or you can contact me via Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Welcome to episode four of the Risk Takers podcast series, where I want to explore risking our legacy. Philippians 2.30 again, that we picked up at the beginning of our last podcast, where we looked at reputation. Paul says about Epaphroditus, honour such people because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for those services that you could not give me. It's a remarkable verse and it really challenges me not only to think about name and reputation, but also about legacy. Sir Isaac Newton once said, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. As Paul thinks of all that Epaphroditus means to him. He sends back to the church in Philippi this man with an encouragement to the community there to honour such people. He wants them to understand that people with a heart like that, like Epaphroditus, don't come along very often. And when they do, they should be honoured. Actually, the Greek phrase is that they should be held in high reputation, which seems to flow rather nicely from risking our reputation, doesn't it, that we explored in the last episode. Paul says that people who are willing to step out in faith and to take risks and to journey into the unknown should be held in the highest regard. Hmm. And that brings me to legacy. Long after Epaphroditus' death, a group of Christians emerged. He seemed to have been inspired by his life and his reputation. They were known as the Parabolani, which is based on the Greek word for risking his life in Philippians 2.30. The movement began in Carthage in AD 252 and lasted several hundred years. It was a group of people willing to risk everything for the sake of the gospel. Let me tell you the story. Like Like many other places at the time, Carthage was experiencing the plague in 252. It was merciless. It brought death and disaster and it struck At the very heart of the city, its sweep claimed the lives of all who stood in its path. So when an outbreak of the plague struck the city in AD 252, the local authorities acted swiftly and decisively. Dead bodies were disposed of and those who were suspected of having been contaminated were put outside the city walls. The impact was enormous, suffering and death and disease on an epic scale. The Bishop of Carthage at the time was a man called Cyprian, And he acted quickly. He called the church together and he invited them to leave the city and to go and live amongst the sick and the dying. He challenged them to give up their comfort and their security and to step into the world of the rejected and the forgotten. And he used the example of Epaphroditus. The Parabolani became a movement that served the broken, the poor, the forgotten and the vulnerable. Inspired by the example of Epaphroditus, they too gave up their security and what they knew and embarked on adventures of a lifetime to serve those who were rejected. Throughout the history of the church, in fact, throughout the history of the people of God of both the Old and the New Testament, we've been a community of risk takers. Abram left Ur of the Chaldees in Genesis 12. Miriam had to take the risk of leaving 
her brother in the Nile in a basket in Exodus 2. It was a risk for Moses and his brother to stand before Pharaoh in Exodus 5. As the people of Israel subdued the land of Canaan and pushed into God's inheritance that God had promised them, Deborah's song reminds us that the people of Zebulun risked their lives, as did the people of Nephtali, on the terraced fields. The Old Testament tells the story of men and women like Deborah and Caleb and Joshua and David and Elijah and Huldah and many others who were willing to take a risk. The Jerusalem Council, the early church, took a risk with Barnabas and Paul. Um, and Barnabas and Paul took a risk themselves. They faced rejection and attack and riot. Paul, when he writes to the church in Rome, acknowledges that many in that great city had risked their lives for him and for the purposes of Christ in Romans 16, 4. When you read the New Testament, you're left with the impression that you're not following men and women who were afraid to try something new or to step away from the crowd. Far from it. Their faith led them to take risks. Their trust led them to face opposition, to reach out for what could be, even if it brought with it the dangers of rejection and death. They were risk takers. I wonder, was it possible to be a follower of Christ in those early days without embracing that risk? In fact, you could go as far as to say that every time a hero of scripture or church history emerges, they do so because they're willing to take a risk. They're willing to try something new. They're willing to break tradition. They're willing to step into new territory. William Carey, the founder of the modern missionary movement, is, re reporting, is reported to have said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for him. I don't have the time in this short podcast to recount the stories of the women and the men through the history of the church who were willing to risk everything for God's kingdom. But we all know some of those stories and we're inspired by them. St. Brendan, the navigator who was willing to embark on a journey of discovery and seek God in new places. The bishops Latimer and Ridley who stood for truth in the midst of great persecution. Mary Jones, the young woman who, uh, whose life and story led to the foundation of the Bible Society. Mary Slessor, the young Dundonian who inspired a missionary movement. Jackie Pullinger, who went to Hong Kong and Kowloon. Jim Elliot, Martin Luther, William Wilberforce, Josiah Wedgwood. Each of them, Elizabeth Fry, each of them took risks in their own ways and in their own lives. Me, I'm inspired by Chris Simmons. He leads Cornerstone Baptist Church in downtown Dallas. He arrived in the church nearly 40 years ago as a student pastor. And as the white, wealthy population moved out, Chris's area became known as the war zone, synonymous with drugs and violence and poverty and drive-by shootings. When he arrived in the church, an elderly member commented that she expected him, like all the leaders that had gone before, to leave within six months. He didn't leave. He's still there. And inch by square inch, downtown Dallas is being transformed by God's power through the church. Chris has risked confrontation with drug dealers, crooks, murderers, the authorities, religious leaders, powerful churches and others. Why? Well, in his words, God has told him that he's to give his life to two postcodes, or if you're in the United States, two zip codes. If you meet him, you'll never forget him. One of the most profound lessons anyone has ever taught me came from him. When I asked him what the most important thing he had learned in his ministry was, he smiled and he said, Malcolm, God has taught me two very important things over the last years. Number one, there is a God. And number two, his name isn't Chris. I'm inspired by Sophie Winter Campbell. She and her husband Mark had a dream that they would train pastors and support the poor in Uganda. Then Mark died as a young man. 
Sophie was left with two children under three, but she didn't give up. She continued her charity and American dream, setting up a school in Uganda, a pastor's training program, helping in hospitals. She developed a scheme that bought piglets for widows and continued to challenge bad structures. She's amazing, a risk taker. Fiona Castle and her family. Just a few years ago, Fiona's husband, uh, Roy, would have been 80. Roy died in September 1994, and it would be easy for Fiona to give up. But instead, she continues to travel the UK to share her story, to take risks so that people might be inspired and touched. I'm inspired by charities like Christians Against Poverty, like Redeeming Our Community, like Transforming Lives for Good, like um, the Food Bank and the Trussell Trust. I'm inspired by Johnny and Fee Thiessen, young friends who are serving God in dangerous and difficult circumstances. Tim and Kathy Keller have inspired me, planting churches in New York, remaining faithful to Christ. Bishop Ken and Mary Good inspired me, serving in Derry and Raffoe right up until his retirement. I could tell you hundreds of stories of people who have continued to serve God and take risks, and you probably don't know most of them. The thing is, we're all able to do it, to leave our legacy in God's hands and to take risks for his kingdom, to put first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and to allow everything else to be second. Epaphroditus' example is an inspiration to many. I thank God for him. If you take a moment, you'll be able to make your own list of people who've inspired you. What is it that each of them shares? What are the common traits that they hold? I suspect that there are several. Courage, faith, determination, hope, boldness, expectation and risk. I think most of them also understand this simple thing. They're not the answer. Only God is. That's a fundamental truth at the heart of what it means to live out our faith and be the change that God wants to see in the world. Behind all the convictions of courage and boldness and confidence lies another fundamental reality that we have to grasp if we are to build beyond ourselves. It's this. The ceiling of my generation can be no more than the floor of the next generation. If we, the church, are to be the movement of hope and change that God has called us to be, then we have to discover the ability to be risk takers again and again so that we can leave behind a higher floor, which is our ceiling, for the generation that comes after us. Somehow, we have to find the courage again to be able to reach out and stand up and go further so that people can stand on our shoulders, like Isaac Newton said he stood on somebody else's. I think we need to think more about heritage than we uh, more about legacy than we do about heritage. I am fifty on the fifth of October. I was born in nineteen seventy in a council estate on the outskirts of North Belfast. I'm now married with four children, and here's my hope: if God spurs me to become an old man, I want to look at my children and my grandchildren. I've got one now, by the way, and another one on the way, and my grandchildren's children in the eye, and I want to say I did everything I could so that you could reach as high as you could. I received the hope of the gospel from the generation before me and I took risks with it. I pressed into new territory. I took new ground. I pushed back the darkness. And I want to, in my dying breath, say to those that I leave behind, take this baton of hope and rise higher than I ever thought possible. Change more than I could ever have changed. Take this gospel power, this life-transforming truth and press into the darkest, vilest 
places of the earth, set prisoners free, never be afraid to try something new, never be afraid to push the boundaries, never be afraid to fail. I don't want to be a generation or part of a generation that buries the talents that God has given. I don't want my generation to clutter up the good news any more than it's already been cluttered. And I want instead us to pass it on to those who come after us. If it's true that we can stand on the shoulders of those that have come gone before us, then how many could stand on our shoulders coming after us? I'm grateful for the shoulders that I stand on. The ministries of people like John Stott, David Pawson, Jim and Anne Graham, George and Linda McKim, Jim McConnell, John and Marilyn Glass, Nancy Craig and so many others. In the United States, the ministries of people like Jack Hayford, Tim Keller, David Wilkerson, Matt Chandler, Jim Wallace, Tony Campolo and others have impacted me. But there are more in the generations before them. Billy Graham, George and Stephen Jeffrey, Smith Wigglesworth, Watchman Nee, D.L. Moody, William Booth, the Wesleys, George Whitfield, Selina the Countess of Huntingdon, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Thomas Aquinas, all the way back to uh, Brendan or to Basil or to uh, St Hilda or St Brige or all the way back to the early church, Athanasius and Tertullian and Peter and John, all the way back to Jesus. And then all the way back to Abraham and to Sarah, each generation standing on the shoulders of the last so that the next generation can do more, see more, grow stronger than any of us thought possible. Isn't that the heart of any good leader? That we release people to go further than we could? I hope it is. And that's about focusing on legacy. Haggai, the prophet of Israel, spoke to Israel at a time when they were facing huge challenges. The book that bears his name tells the story of just four short prophetic messages delivered around 520. The people of Israel had returned of the southern kingdom from uh, Babylon to Israel in 537 and 538. But by 520, their hard work at rebuilding the temple had stopped. They'd given up, discouraged, disillusioned, lost their focus, who knows? But Haggai is raised up by God, as God says to the people, finish the work. Do what God has asked you to do. God's promises that he would supply their need, that he would lead them, that he would restore them and use them are enormously important. The New Testament church was the same. They pressed in. They followed the leading of the Spirit. They went where God asked them. They were willing to take risks to do things that nobody else had ever done. Their legacy was more important than their history. Somebody had to speak in tongues for the first time. Somebody had to welcome a Gentile for the first time. Somebody had to embrace a woman's role in ministry for the first time. Somebody had to break with tradition for the first time and reach out and stretch out and try something. And they did it. So what about us? Right now, in the midst of a COVID pandemic, do we interpret what Cyprian did in Carthage and say that we should take off our masks and ignore them and ignore all the regulations and just open our churches and have jamborees? No, that's not the point of risk-taking. The point of risk-taking in our context and in our culture, risking our legacy, being willing to look forward rather than just around, is about saying, when somebody is suffering from COVID, we'll be there to help. We'll buy their shopping. We'll walk with them. We'll sit with them. We'll hold their hand. We'll visit them in hospital. We'll care for them. 
We'll not wait on people coming to our church. What kind of weird understanding of risk is it that we say that we will take off our masks and have our services and that's the risk? That's not a risk. That's foolhardy. What we're called to do is to go to where people are and meet them at their point of need and be Christ to them. Over the last three episodes of this podcast, we have looked at risking our name, risking our reputation, and now in this episode, choosing our legacy. There's a sense of compulsion and energy and importance about this. Becoming a risk taker is not an optional extra for you or for me as a Christian. It's a fundamental part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I have a yearning, aching question in my spirit. It keeps me up at night. It gets me out of bed in the morning. There are times in my day when it erupts into my consciousness like a a shaft of clear blue light. Where are the risk takers today in the church? I don't mean the people that move every five minutes. I don't mean the people that are arrogant and tell everybody that they all have to become missionaries and move to the other side of the world. I mean the people that are willing to take risks so that ordinary men and women can live in the purposes of God. I want to know if the church is primarily seen as a movement of risk takers. Ask yourself whether you think people closely associated with the church could also be called people who are brave, who risk. I want to be part of a risk-taking church, one that sees the possible and reaches for it even if we miss it. I want to be part of a community that dreams big and sees vivid colours of possibility that only God could fulfil. I don't want to come up with a vision that I could fulfil with God's help. I want to come up with a vision that is so much God that only he can do it. I'm utterly, utterly convinced that the God who breathed awakening, revival and renewal in the USA and the UK in the past can do so again. I'm convinced that he will do it. So I want to dig a ditch with my life, according to 2 Kings 3.16. I'm willing to go anywhere, do anything, move at the drop of a hat to be in the purposes of God. I want to be part of a church that's alive to the presence of the Holy Spirit, seeing and breaking in and transforming lives. I want to be part of a generation that will not take no for an answer, who will press into all that God has for us. I don't mean that we will be vitriolic and shallow and empty and triumphalistic. That's grossly, grossly not what I mean. I mean a passionate community risking everything for God's purposes so that his glory might be seen, his kingdom might be built and the world that he wants might be birthed. And here's the call to you and to me. Will we risk ourselves for Christ. I'm part of the Pentecostal church and the charismatic church. And I want to say something that will challenge them based on what a friend of mine, R.T. Kendall, said many years ago. In the great story of Abraham, Abraham and Sarah were promised a child. That child eventually came in the form of Isaac. But between the promise and the fulfilment, Abraham and Sarah plotted together and they involved a woman called Hagar, And as a result, Ishmael, the older son, was born. He wasn't the child of the promise. They tried to force God's hand and disaster ensued. A disaster that still impacts Jews and Arabs today. 
I think the charismatic and Pentecostal movements in the church were an Isaac. A promise of God that had the potential to bring renewal and hope and strength to the body of Christ. And in many ways, I think we have. In many ways, however, I think we have become movements that have taken our Isaac mantle and turned it into an Ishmael anointing. I want to be careful how I say that because I don't want you to misunderstand what I mean. I'm grateful to God that I sit within the tradition of the church that is Pentecostal. I believe in the pouring out of God's spirit and his revival and life-giving power in our hearts and in our lives. What happened at the beginning of the 20th century changed everything. He was drawing his people into fresh intimacy and power in order to send us into the world with a fresh sense of missionary zeal and purpose. It's with a deep sense of regret and some nervousness that I want to say I believe that the Pentecostal and charismatic churches of the world have largely become self-obsessed. We have replaced the missional purpose of the Spirit of God with an ever-deepening desire for personal experience. We've sold the birthright of mission into a broken and flawed world for the bowl of pottage of a largely individualised and privatised piety. And God will have none of it. God called us to be Isaacs full of promise and hope and possibilities and we've turned into Ishmael's where we've put ourselves at the centre of God's plans and God will have none of it. Martin Luther once described the heart or, or sin as um, cur se curvatus say, the heart turned in upon itself. And I think that if we are not careful, those of us in the Pentecostal and charismatic churches become so obsessed with what we want and what we need and what we feel that we turn in upon ourselves. If we do not step away from our self-absorption, we will become irrelevant. We'll have no legacy. The world doesn't need a group of people looking into their own experiences of God, shut away from the pain and the desires around us. There are two paths that lie before us. One is safe and the other is risky. The safe one is to keep doing what we've always done, keep having our meetings, keep having fun, Keep slowly enjoying God's presence while the world around us realises that entertainment happens in better places, in better ways than in the church. We will die, not suddenly, but we will die. We will breathe out our last slowly because we are self-absorbed. The second is risking our reputation, stepping into the fray of the world again, developing Pentecostal and charismatic theologies of suffering, of presence, of life, of service, of commitment, of mission, holding on to the truth of the gospel, stepping out of the centre of the circle of our own lives and our own churches and inviting King Jesus to take his church back. The Spirit doesn't propel us into self-absorption. The Spirit propels us into mission and in doing so he propels us into risk. Like Peter standing on the edge of a boat in Matthew 8, we're called to step out and follow Jesus. There's huge risk in a step like that, but you better believe it. Like stepping away from your Jewish-only identity in Acts 15 and saying we're for the Jews and the Gentiles. Like embracing people that everybody else rejected. There's a generation of people around me, and I believe this. Not an age-related generation, a mindset generation who have had enough of self-indulgent services, me-centred meetings and vacuous and facile teaching on healing. They believe that the good news of Jesus is that God is reconciling the world to himself and he has sent his son as the king of all creation, that the powers have been broken, that sin has been dealt with, that the substitution has been made and that we are now called to a missional life of purpose and transformation. 
and that the church is at the centre of God's plans. Our preaching matters. Our presence matters. Our voice matters. Our prayers matter. Our dependency in God and on God matters. The risk is following that call and we will leave a deeper and more beautiful legacy than we could ever leave anyway else. Are you in or are you out? My dad dropped dead on the 31st of August 2002. I miss him. He's buried in Carnmoney Cemetery, not far from where I'm sitting right now. And on his headstone it says, John Bell Duncan, 3rd of July 1931 to the 31st of August 2002. And 71 years of life are represented by a one-inch dash of gold on a slab of grey granite. That doesn't do any justice to him. He was so much more. Mark Anthony's words in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar are wrong. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones. The good that God does through us lives on after us. It's a foundation of hope for those who will follow in the faith. It passes to them a greater vision of what could be. Our responsibility is to take whatever risks we need to so that we might become all that God has made us to be. The enemy seeks to stop us, but change is possible. Our legacy is our greatest gift to the generation that follows us. Risking our name, risking our reputation and choosing our legacy. As I tie those three things together in this episode of um, the Risk Takers podcast series, I bring to a conclusion the first part of it. From here on, we're going to look at individual risks that we can take. But are you willing to risk your name? Are you willing to risk your reputation? Will you choose Christ's legacy and reaching further than you could ever have reached on your own. Our legacy is our greatest gift to the generation that follows us. Passing them a greater vision of what could be. So how are you going to be remembered? On the back of my iPad, I have the words of the Puritan preacher Richard Baxter engraved. Live life so as to be missed. What we leave behind is the measure of what we have done and achieved for Christ. May you, may I, may we be willing to take whatever risks we need so that we can be, it can be said of us, they lived life so as to be missed.